I would never be a blonde hair, blue eyed fairy princess, and that those stories had nothing to do with Leaders me. all over the world have, have started to manipulate their populations. This poem is called Best Laid. It's clear the wind won't let up and it swims out. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural Rhodes Forum on the Humanities. My name is Michael, and today Chantal and I have the great pleasure of interviewing Sasha Polako-Saransky, the deputy editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. Um, Sasha, thanks for joining us today. Um, before we get started, would you just like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be back here at Rhodes House. I was a scholar here at Oxford at St. Anthony's College from 2003 to 2006 and did a DPhil in modern history. And I've been working in journalism since then, and I'm currently at Foreign Policy Magazine. That's great. So I'm going to ask you a bit about your, your journalism career and your work at Foreign Policy. But before we get there, I'm going to toss it over to Chantal, who's going to kick off the interview. Um, hi, Sasha. Uh, so my name is Chantal, and I will be starting off by asking you questions about your experience here at Oxford and um, about your recent book. So um, considering the fact that you were here at Oxford um, in 2003 as a Rhodes Scholar, and today we are back at Rhodes House um, at Oxford, my first question would be, um, how did your experience at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar prepare you to stand up for the world in the work you're currently pursuing today? When I was here, I was focused on quite different topics to, to what I'm working on now, but it did relate to foreign policy and international relations. And my focus was, was looking at South Africa's relationship with Israel during the Cold War primarily their military relationship, and that involved digging through lots of archives in South Africa, interviewing retired generals and diplomats in both countries. And I think that I really got a firm basis academically, but also practically for, for what came later in my career by being here and working on a degree that required me to go out into the world and interview people in foreign countries, sometimes in foreign languages, dig through archives and really build the research skills that became very useful for me later on as a journalist, where you spend a lot of time interviewing people, often contentiously interviewing people who don't necessarily agree with you or the project that you're working on, and also how to assess documents and place them within historical context and, and create a narrative out of, out of what those documents tell you and out of what those people tell you some of the time people speak to you in a self-serving way because they want to uh, secure their place in history and paint themselves in a positive light. And so it also taught me, even though I was in a history department doing a DPhil, uh, some of the skills that are everyday requirements as a journalist today. Interesting. Thank you. Um, and then moving on now to your book. So what would you say was the motivation behind writing um, Go Back to Where You Came From, The Backlash Against Immigration and the Fate of Western Democracy? I've been interested in the issue of migration and refugees for a long time. In fact, I almost focused on that issue when I was at Oxford. I thought seriously about doing a master's in forced migration when I was here, but decided instead to, to work on, on the Israel-South Africa history that I was just telling you about. So, so the interest has always been there. And then in 2015, as the Syrian refugee crisis started to peak, I felt that this was the moment, if I was ever going to get serious about researching this topic and writing about it, this was the moment to do it. And at that point, you had over a million people coming into Europe, far-right politicians, 
in most European countries, including some of the largest and most important, like France, using this issue to bolster their popularity and attack both migrants and people of, of migrant backgrounds who are French citizens or Dutch citizens or Danish citizens. And so, so the politics really turned in 2015 uh, as politicians on the right started to manipulate this issue. And so I decided to leave my job at the New York Times, which was not the easiest decision. Uh, I liked the job. I was working at the op-ed page at the time. Uh, and uh, not many people leave a job at the New York Times, but I felt like this was the time to write a book on this topic. And as we've seen since then, it's, it's, it's only gotten worse in terms of the political backlash against migrants and refugees throughout Europe and the United States and really all over the world, uh, from, from places like Australia to, to South Africa as well. And so I wanted to focus on this at, at a moment when I felt like it was, it, it was emerging into public consciousness and it was an issue that no one was really paying serious attention to. And then suddenly, since then, when, when I started writing this book, it, it's almost become the primary political issue that everyone is talking about. And so, um, you know, I, uh, I like to think I, I, I got out ahead of it a bit. My only regret is that I didn't take seriously what was going on in my own country because most of the book was written in 2016, much of it before the U.S. election. I was focused largely on, on the far right in Europe, and I had a chapter and, and a bit here and there about Trump's rise in the U.S., but uh, I hadn't focused on, on it as much, and I hadn't thought at that point in time that it was actually going to turn out the way that it did. Um, so, you know, and now he's gone and used the title of my book in attacking congresswomen who were born outside of the United States and ones who were born in the United States and telling them to go back to where they came from. And uh, quoting directly from your book, you say, the greatest threat to liberal democracies does not come from immigrants and refugees, but from the backlash against them by those on the inside who exploit the fear of the outsiders. So to what extent do you believe that such anti-immigration sentiments have contributed to the rapidly changing um, global civic space in terms of who participates in it and on what terms? I think it's the central issue of our time, and I think it manifests itself in different ways in different countries. So I mentioned South Africa before. Uh, you will know, um, being from the region, that this is a very serious issue. Most people outside of Southern Africa have no idea that there's massive amounts of xenophobia in South Africa by black South Africans against other Africans. So it manifests itself in different ways, but the, the sense that they are coming from elsewhere and taking what belongs to us is a constant in all of these places. And I think that it's really eroded liberal democratic institutions and, and norms in all sorts of countries. And most people focus on Trump in the U.S. or certain European countries. But you see this in, in all sorts of places, from South Africa to Turkey now, where there are millions of Syrian refugees who didn't make it into Europe, who've been living in Turkey for the last four or five years. And now there's a backlash in Turkey, which initially welcomed those people. And it's, it's playing out in a very similar way to what we've seen in Western Europe and the United States, where politicians start to feel pressure from a population that says, our comforts, our benefits, what we enjoyed before is being encroached upon by these other groups who don't belong here and they're taking what is ours. And you start to see a real turn in the politics then because those politicians want to stay in power and, and to win votes. And they realize that non-citizens who are non-voters are not going to help them very much. And so they start to cave into the demands of, of an anti-immigrant population. And so I think it's, it's very dangerous also because it starts to 
create uh, an erosion of, of, of liberal democracy that turns it into majoritarian democracy. What the majority wants goes. And that is not classical liberal democracy because the institutions that protect minority groups' rights, that protect checks and balances, that protect an independent judiciary, all of that starts to fall away when majoritarian leaders say, this is what the people want, and we will serve the people's will. And they often shape and distort what the so-called people actually want in order to serve their own political ends. And so what you end up seeing is countries that have been vibrant and successful, long-standing liberal democracies start to fall apart, and these institutions that have, have been firm for, for many generations uh, start to erode, and, and that can be a very dangerous thing. Interesting. Um, so just following up on that, before we move on to the next segment, um, so the theme of the World Humanities Forum this year is the role of stories in shaping the collective imagination. In this context, what role can the ordinary citizen play in deconstructing these anti-immigration narratives, and, um, and how do we actively reconstruct the discourse? That's a tough question. I, I think that most ordinary citizens who've had contact with people who come from other countries are not naturally predisposed to, to accept the kind of xenophobic rhetoric that, that these leaders, anti-immigrant leaders, are, are putting out there. I think most people who live in a community that's diverse and who have experienced everyday interactions with neighbors who come from somewhere else, their, their reflex is, is to be tolerant. And I think that what's happened is that leaders all over the world have, have started to manipulate their populations and tell them that the threat comes from outside and that if your living standards are declining, it's not because of any policies that, that the government is responsible for. It's not uh, the result of income inequality. It's not the result uh, uh, of any laws. It's because these outsiders, these immigrants, are coming and taking your jobs, taking your social benefits, taking uh, your your access to good public health care. And, and so the blame is directed on, on this outside group. So I think what ordinary citizens, especially those who, who know that that's not true and their own lived experience tells them that that's not true, is they need to get involved in everyday politics and push back against this narrative. And that can be done in various ways, you can vote for people who put forward uh, a, a different, more conciliatory narrative. You can get involved in politics yourself. You can write op-eds in newspapers. You can go on TV and debate people who are, who are putting forward these kinds of messages. And I think it's really important because there always will be a certain subgroup in any population that hasn't encountered difference and hasn't encountered diversity in people from other places. And they will react favorably to Trump's rhetoric or to Le Pen's rhetoric because they live in a community where everyone looks like them and talks like them and, and they've never seen anything else. And I'm not saying everyone in those sorts of communities is receptive to this. Many of them resisted and know intuitively that, that, that it's destructive and, and untrue. But um, I think that it, it's, it's a responsibility for, for people who have lived in, in big metropolitan areas where people from all over the world converge to, to, to counter that narrative and, and to, to put out a, a different 
political story, which may say, yes, your living standards have declined, and yes, things aren't great in this country, but it's not the fault of, of, of Polish plumbers who've come to England, and it's not the fault of Zimbabweans who've gone to South Africa that your living standards are in decline. It's because your own government hasn't done anything to help you and to maintain your living standards um, in this economic climate. Such incredible insights. I will hand over to Michael to go on to the next segment. Thanks, Chantel. Um, to begin this sort of next half, I just want to transition more into to talking about your, your journalistic work, your work at the New York Times and now at Foreign Policy. And uh, I want to pick up on sort of the two hats you wear, on the one hand, as a scholar in the humanities and as a writer, an academic writer, then on the other hand, as a journalist and, and an editor. So I wonder how your academic work as a historian sort of influences your practice as a journalist and sort of what are the benefits and challenges of transitioning uh, from writing in one domain to writing in the other? I think history is probably the best discipline to, to major in academically if you want to transition into a career like journalism, because it is less dependent on disciplinary jargon. Uh, I, I feel that the history department at Oxford, for instance, and history departments in many places really value clear, accessible writing that isn't directed only towards other anthropologists or other sociologists, uh, but has a general audience in mind. And so going from that into journalism is easier than going from a more specialized academic field uh, because you don't have to translate from a form of academic jargon that's understood within the anthropology or sociology department into plain language that can be understood by a general audience. That's not to say there wasn't any work to be done. I heavily rewrote my dissertation, my DPhil dissertation from Oxford, and turned it into a mainstream book published by a mainstream press in, in the US. But it wasn't a full-scale translation of one kind of writing into another. It was just tweaking here and there and adding things and context and, and making it a, a little more accessible. So I think Training in the humanities generally, uh, especially in history, can, can be very good for, for, for someone who wants to go into journalism, also because of the investigative skills that you're forced to develop uh, doing historical archival work. Because when you become a journalist, especially if you become an investigative journalist, one of the first things you have to learn is how to find sources, how to find documents, how to assess those documents, how to get them declassified from, from an archive if they're held by a ministry in, 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 in a country where, where they're still top secret. And these are the kinds of things journalists do every day. And so I already had that experience here and knew how to do that, which was very useful. And also interviewing, which isn't something that occurs in, in all academic research, but a lot of fields will require you to, to do some sort of interviewing in history. In my case, it was oral history, going to people who were players in the episodes and, and historical uh, events that I was describing and, and getting them to tell their stories and explain their reasoning for acting the way they did and doing the things that they did, negotiating the deals that, that they did during the 1970s and 80s. And that also served me very well because I learned how to handle combative interviews uh, with people who were defensive or trying to cover up certain things that they didn't want to come to light in the historical record or trying to, to be self-aggrandizing and, and, and paint themselves as heroic when they actually weren't. And so all of those sorts of interactions that I had even if I didn't know it at the time, later served me very well because I didn't have to learn those skills as a journalist. It just came to me naturally because I'd been doing it while I was doing my research for my DPhil. 
Right. I'm sure those insights will be very helpful for a lot of scholars who yeah. are considering going into journalism. Um, but now I want to ask you about your role as an editor, uh, specifically at Foreign Policy, and how you sort of achieve balance in the pieces you publish there. Mm. And um, sort of this question emerges from, I guess, the trends in trust that we're seeing around the world right now, the degradation of trust, yeah. whether that's in our immigration systems or border security or in multilateralism, international cooperation. And I'm wondering how you balance publishing pieces that attempt to uphold trust in the international system, broadly mm. speaking, with pieces that are more critical of it or maybe even skeptical of its continued mm. existence. It's a good question. I I'm very open to everything. And I actually enjoy publishing stuff that I vehemently disagree with. And I found both at the New York Times and now in this job that, that often the authors with whom I disagree enjoy the process too because an editor who, who disagrees with you as an author can immediately poke holes in the argument in all the places where that writer is likely to get attacked in letters to the editor and responses elsewhere on the radio. And so I think being open to a variety of perspectives. It's something that that came with the territory at an op-ed page. Um, we, we were always striving to, to create debate on the page at the New York Times and to get people who disagreed with each other and publish them side by side or a day or two apart and really get readers arguing with each other, arguing with the authors. And so I think it's very important as long as it's a solid argument and that it, it it's not pure polemic with no basis in reality. And so I think that's where serious editing comes in, which means both poking holes in an argument uh, so that the author is forced to think about how, how someone might counter it, but also asking people, you know, can you add a bit of data here? Could you add a link here? You know, we w the readers are going to want to see what's behind this. Give me some evidence here. And, and you fill it out and make it more bulletproof as an argument, no matter which direction it's going in politically. And at foreign policy, yeah, we, ha we, we do have a variety of authors and arguments, and some people are very skeptical of the international system as it is today. And I think that it's uh, it's important to publish that kind of thing, both to to make readers think and and to get them riled up sometimes, as long as the some thought has gone into it, and it's not just a, a, a sort of armchair quarterbacking reflexive denunciation of this or that. We don't publish that sort of thing, but we will work with people who are making controversial arguments and, and get them out there. So when you're working with those people, how much of the sort of current clickbait culture uh, in journalism influences sort of the advice you're giving to writers and how much of it is more targeted towards writing effective journalistic pieces that might affect some sort of action from another party? Mostly the latter. We try to avoid any sort of clickbait. Um, it's not what foreign policy does. It is a concern. It's there on the back burner. There are discussions. Should we use this headline? Should we use that headline? What will make people click? What will work well on social media? Because that's how people are coming to the website now. You have often 50% or more of readers coming over to, to the site from, from Facebook or Twitter. So you have to grab people with headlines so that they actually click on read the, and read the rest of the article. But we we still try to avoid what, what most people would call clickbait. And um, I think that what what I've seen, which surprised me, to be honest, because you look, you, you know, we have software that shows you all of the numbers and who's reading what right now and how many people are on the site. And it's often topics that I would have reacted to as somewhat obscure that do very well. So for instance, I found this year that anything we publish about Ethiopian politics goes completely viral. And 
the reason is, is that there's a large and very engaged Ethiopian diaspora around the world that's very political, and there's a lot going on in Ethiopia at the moment. There, there's, you know, an incredibly important moment of opening and reform that's also very dangerous. The prime minister's just won the Nobel Peace Prize. But when I commissioned those articles, I said yes to the authors because they sounded like interesting ideas, but I expected a few thousand people to read them. So I think it, what, what it shows is that the, the reflex among journalists that it has to be about a big country like Russia or China for anyone to pay attention is wrong. And that, uh, you know, a provocative argument about a small country that no one usually pays attention to, if it's timed right. For instance, last week, Bolivia, we published two or three articles about Bolivia, and they were the top most read articles on the site. We almost never write about Bolivia, and Bolivia is almost never in the headlines of The Guardian or The New York Times or The Washington Post. But at that moment, people were coming to foreign policy because they didn't know what was going on in Bolivia and wanted to understand it. And so I think that um, the the assumption that clickbait is what's needed in, in journalism right now is is actually wrong in many cases. And, and if you take a deep dive into the data on a site like ours, it, it, it's quite clear that there's a hunger for good, solid reporting and analysis about places that aren't usually covered. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sasha. Thank you, Sasha, for joining us today. The Rhodes Humanities Forum podcast was edited by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. The music you heard was Happy Ukulele by scottholmesmusic.com.